HBCUs have a long storied history from even before slavery to the mid 20th century and profoundly influenced the course of our nation for the last 150 years. Join on our journey as we learn of the stories of those who've experienced the wonders and possibilities of an HBCU. As we look from the past and connect it to the future, HBCUs are the definitive education for African-American students. I'm your host, Dr. Jennifer Stimson, an Albert Einstein Distinguished Educator Fellow working in Congress. I'm an alum of Dillard University, Go Blue Devils, and a proud member of Delta Sigma Theta Sorority Incorporated. I will guide you on our episode as we learn more closely about what's happening at HBCU campuses. We will hear from those closely affiliated to the HBCU experience, from the folks in the Divine Nine, to some activists, to members of Congress, to the HBCU presidents themselves, to the students, both those currently engaged in classes and those who are alum. This podcast is a reminder about the importance of HBCUs. Let's get into it. Good afternoon, everyone. I'm so glad to have you all here listening to this episode of our podcast. This HBCU Caucus podcast centers the voices and the experiences of those of us who are HBCU alums and then tells the story of the HBCU experience by those who live it, work it, and own it. And today we have a wonderful guest, a wonderful man coming from the great state of Louisiana, the wonderful Dr. Walter Kimbrough, who is the president of Dillard University. So Dr. Kimbrough, I turn it over to you. Well, thank you for having me. Um, I'm glad to be here. As you said, I'm Walter Kimbrough, president of Dillard University. Um, I've been here almost nine years. And before that, I was president of Philander Smith College in Little Rock, Arkansas for seven and a half years. Uh, and I guess altogether, I've been in the HBCU space since 2000 when I started as a vice president at Albany State University. So this is my third HBCU and I'm 21 years in the uh, HBCUs. Oh, I love it. And you only, you don't look a day over 25. So you're doing something. You're doing something <laughs> that vitamin E oil is working. Right. <laughs> <laughs> So let's get into our interview. So I've got a couple of questions, and I just love—I'd love to hear your 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 voice and and in, in the uh, in the conversation. And the first question is about the history of the HBCU is long and storied. Can you speak to us about the origins of Dillard, and why do you think that Dillard was founded based on what was happening in society at that time? Okay, right. So. For Dillard University, like a number of HBCUs, there were a couple of religious denominations that were doing some of this work at the same time. Um, I'm United Methodist, and so the Methodist Episcopal Church, uh, the bishops were meeting in Ohio in the 1800s, and they were saying, like, look, we're about to have all these free people in the South. Y'all know the people in the South not going to do right. Somebody's got to educate these people, so we're going to be the ones to do it. So it was really interesting that they created a Freedmen's A uh, Bureau, which was like the Freedmen's A Society that Lincoln created, the same kind of model with the goal being we're going to create these schools and educate 
these newly freed people. That was it's sort of as their mission work. So, you know, there today you have United Methodist HBCUs like Dillard and Philander and Wiley and Rust and Bethune Cookman and Clark Atlanta. So all of us come out of that tradition. So there was a school started here in New Orleans in 1869 by the Methodist Episcopal Church. Well, at the same time, the American Missionary Association, which became the United Church of Christ, and of course, the American Missionary Association was very involved in the abolition movement. They also were creating schools. And so they don't have as many as the Methodists, but you have like a Houston Tillerson and a Lemoyne Owen is out of a UCC tradition. Uh, and of course, Dillard is a part of the UCC tradition in Tougaloo. So they did the same kind of thing in the same year. I think almost in the same month in New Orleans, they created a school. So you had these two little schools in 1869, and then you had these outside forces come in, uh, the General Education Fund out of, uh, out of uh, New York. You had Julius Rosenwald, who at that time was doing all of these Rosenwald schools. They all got together and said, look, y'all got these two little bitty schools. They're not going to survive. Why don't y'all merge? We're going to bring in outside money and create a stronger institution. It was named after James Hardy Dillard, who was very involved with that um, general education fund, did a lot in terms of advancing the causes of African-Americans. And so this campus that we have, they, they they merged it in 1930 and opened this campus in 1935. So that's sort of how we got together. So two religious denominations, then this very diverse group of people because there were Afro-Creoles who were very involved in the, the founding of the AMA affiliated school, New Orleans University. So that's that's sort of our, our history. And it's such a storied history in and of itself. I mean, you know, thinking about how, I love what you just said about, you know, and people in the South, we were, we were recently, freed and so how are we going to learn and better ourselves and so and and coming from new orleans you know that was one of, that was the second largest slave port and so imagine right. being you know be coming here on a boat from you know upper the upper south now you are free to go to school i can't imagine what the people were you know living in in that time and there's so much history in there we can we can go back all the way to napoleon selling the selling louisiana the Louisiana Purchase. So there's just so much. So that that's I appreciate that. Now, yeah. one of the things about um, an HBCU campus, of course, is the presence of these civic organizations. And of course, there's a group of, of organizations that we call the Divine Nine. And can you talk to us what, from your perspective, the intersection of the HBCU institution and the Divine Nine. What is that long and storied history about those two organizations, those two groups working together or apart? Right, right. Well, so if you look at the history of those groups with the first undergraduate intercollegiate Greek-letter organization being Alpha Phi Alpha, so it was founded at Cornell. And really the men at Cornell at that time saw these fraternal organizations that had developed the fraternal movement in the United States goes back to 1776 with Phi Beta Kappa. So these young men saw that and they saw those structures in place and they realized and say, we're at this prestigious institution. How do we create an environment? I think even a couple of them worked in fraternity houses. So they saw that and said, wouldn't it be good to have that kind of association for black men? So that's really starts that movement in 1906. And so then when you get to Howard University in 1908, the Alphas form a chapter there in 1907. So they're the first group on that campus. But um, you know, part of the story is that one of the persons who founded the chapter there, George Lyle, was dating a woman by the name of Ethel Hedgeman, who he later married. 
who was one of the members who started Alpha Kappa Alpha, and which makes sense because at that time you had, just like you had few African-American students at Cornell, you had few women in higher education, even at a Howard. So those women then were looking for that same kind of camaraderie at a place where it was still very strict um, guidelines in terms of how you interact, the, the sexes would interact on campus and you had to have permission to, you know, play outside together and, you know, be escorted. So they wanted that kind of sisterhood. And so that that launches all of that. And so Howard then becomes a crucible where you have a number of those groups that are founded um, between 1908 and 1922 with Sigma Gamma Rho, even though that's at Butler University in Indianapolis. Um, so Zeta Phi Beta 1920, you have a number of groups that are founded there. And then you have Sigma Gamma Rho at Butler and then Kappa Alpha Psi Indiana University. And you come back to HBCUs with Iota Phi Theta 1963 at Morgan State. Um, so, you know, a lot of that early growth started at some of the progressive institutions in the Northeast and at HBCUs like a Howard. The HBCU growth though doesn't really happen until the 1940s when those institutions become accredited because those persons who founded the group said, we wanted to be at very legitimate, I mean, they, they, felt, they felt themselves. They were like, we wanna have these chapters, but they need to be at really reputable schools that we know are gonna last. So that's when you see the growth in the 1940s and 50s all across the South because Southern HBCUs become accredited. So there has been this linkage between Black Greek led organizations and HBCUs uh, and the cultures, I think, merge, um, I think, you know, pretty significantly, particularly as you look at the modern HBCU, which is sort of like if you think about what Beyonce did and her whole, you know, performance at Coachella was this merging of HBCUs and Black Greek culture. She probably did it the best in terms of popular culture from that perspective. <laughs> And and did she not? I mean, we all we all love what is it? Homecoming. We all want to go to Beyonce's. Right. We all want to go to Beyonce's homecoming. So, right. um, talk to us about that experience on Dillard's campus. So, what are the Black Greek letter organizations? I mean, despite the pandemic, um, what are you seeing with social action involved with the students on Dillard's campus within those students who are Divine Nine? Right. So for a lot of them, and you're right, just with the pandemic, it's been difficult. So they really had to focus on some of the national programs, which I think I think the good thing during the pandemic is that there has been great national leadership to give the, the undergraduates on our campus and other campuses their marching orders. You know, I, I'm an alpha. So, I mean, we've had this long history to talk about, you know, a voteless people is a hopeless people. And so the chapters here and other places really have had a, you know, we just came off a presidential election. So there was a lot of energy. And once again, you saw that synergy because you have Kamala Harris, Alpha Kappa Alpha Howard University. So she perfectly merged them even for today. And you're seeing that still other places of people who are in leadership in the country, you know, mayors of cities like in my hometown of Atlanta, Keisha Lance Bottoms, FAMU graduate, Delta Sigma Theta, um, Randall Woodfin, mayor of Birmingham, Alpha Phi Alpha. I mean, so Morehouse College grad. So we're seeing a lot of those things happen, but they're, they're getting their, their, their clues from the national leadership. So alphas can focus a lot on, on that. Um, AKA really has blown out everybody because they've been raising all kind of money for HBCUs. Um, and when you have the national president, who's also president of Tennessee State, once again, she's an HBCU grad, president of HBCU, president of AKA. So you're still seeing this symbiotic relationship between those two entities. And so we're seeing that the students are really engaged in the election season. A lot of them are involved in some of the activism with continued election um, efforts that are going on. And I, I think now going forward, 
forward, you're going to see more of them continue to be involved in a lot of the social justice issues. So I see that's where they're playing a role. And some of that has been, you know, over the last couple of years, you know, particularly for some of the sororities, there was some pushback when people were protesting and wearing letters and people were just like, oh, I don't know if you should do that. But from a historical point of view, and particularly when I look at pictures of the 1960s of black college students working with the civil rights movement, they all wearing letters. I mean, it's just like they're wearing them prominently. So some people just felt like, well, if you get arrested and you got the letters on, it's like, no, that's good. I like that. I, I want us to be out there on the front lines because that's what the groups have been doing. We had our members getting arrested. I'd rather them be arrested wearing the letters and doing something that is not, you know, representing the organization. Um, so those are the kinds of things that I think the election provided a lot, and particularly with the Kamala Harris, that generated all of the HBCU Black Greek Letter organizations together. Uh, but going forward, now people have to start saying, okay, what do we want to be engaged in? And there's still a lot of, the, the voter issues are going to be big. I mean, for the next couple of years, that's, that's going to be where they can play a major role. So that's not going away. I, I think that is such a good point. Um, what is the what? What can we do to continue this this energy, the synergy, and um, the civic engagement? And, and HBCUs, we we've, we've been doing this since you know 1837. Our 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 presence in and of itself is is an act of resistance and an act of defiance in a way that we're going to move everything forward. And 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 like you said, the the students took the realm and still move their organizations and their activism for, forward despite, I mean, that, that's another thing. There is nothing you can put in front of us that we cannot get over. Right. And that is definitely something that's learned at an HBCU campus. We learn how to get over those obstacles because they're just molehills, they're not mountains. And that's what is taught, that's what, that's what we're learning in this space. So uh, uh, moving into that same direction, talk to us about the future of this, of the HBCU culture and this woke culture. Now everybody is just woke and how um, HBCUs are, are they rededicating and re repatriating people to be woke to do more? Or is this something that is just a hype that people are just hype hopping on to just because, oh, now we have, we, we can see somebody who represents an HBCU. And, and I, I love, and I, and I want to get you distracted because I know that I, I talk a lot, but I'm thinking about, you know, what you're talking about, Keisha Lance Bottoms and, the, and Vice President Harris. And then, of course, your fraternity brother, Raphael Warnock and, right. you know, a, a new senator. Um, all of we are now all on the bandwagon because of this, the HBCUs and, and their, their, you know, Greek letter organization uh, members, Divine Nine members. But is there a future beyond that? Is it? Is there a future in terms of what now? Help me reframe that. I want to make sure I answer it. So this, oh, so that's a good, okay. So this woke um, folk philosophy, everybody wants to be woke now. Everybody wants to be cool and hip. So what happens now? Yeah. That's that's really the thing. It's like they're in, now what happens? Yeah, yeah. I, um, you know, I've been thinking about this lately because um, I'm almost thinking like it's, it's almost time to retire that term. And, be, and part of the reason is because it's sort of been co-opted by conservatives to say, oh, this is just woke culture is, you know, um, I'm trying to think of what the governor in Georgia talks about. These woke people are cancel culture and all of that. You know, once you start to have mainstream people sort of use a term and not really use it appropriately, it's just like when 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 you start to see people on Good Morning America talk about bling, it was like, all right, it's time to end that term. So it's like it's just one of those terms. It's sort of like it's time to use something else now because you got people who really don't fully understand what that meant. And now they're misappropriating the term. Um, so I think there still is 
a need for us to, I mean, it's deeper that, than that for me. It's, there is a need for us to have um, more substantive conversations and dialogue and study about where we are in this time period and what we need to do. And so it's not just because I think sometimes this idea of being woke is superficial for people that they have achieved a level of understanding and um, knowledge that they have attained without the proper study. You know what I'm saying? And so I think there's got to be study and self-reflection if you're really going to achieve a new level of consciousness and understanding and people aren't doing that part of the work. So I think it's time to retire the term and really it's just talking about how are we going to, if you look at Martin Luther King's steps for King and nonviolence, and a lot of people have jumped right to the protest stage, which I think is stage five or so, instead of early on, they're talking about studying and understanding the issue. So you got people going right from zero to a hundred and I, I want to protest. And it's like, you don't even know what the issues are really. You haven't spent the time to say, let's fully dissect what the issues are. Let's understand this. So you're just not out there hollering and screaming about something that you don't really know what you're hollering and screaming about. And so that's part of the problem that I think this idea of this woke culture is, is something that you can just, you know, drop of a dime, you get out there and you protest and you're making things happen and nothing works like that. And so people have to understand that, that that's not what this is. And even if you understand I don't, people don't really use that term when they talk about Stacey Abrams, which is good because she has been very methodical in what she's doing. And people are dismissing that because they just act like, oh, Stacey Abrams just got up and made this. No, it's, it's very strategic. It's, it's very thoughtful. And we've got to be thoughtful and methodical like that. And that's not always flashy. There is a role for the protest part, too. But once the protest ends, you know, the long game, which I think conservatives do a better job, they play the long game. And people want to get the quick win and then they call it a day. It's like, all right, we're going to wait y'all out and wait till we get back control. And then we're going to start, like I said, we're going to select these young white conservative judges in their 30s that are not qualified because we're going to we're going to mess this up for 40 years. And y'all out there protesting about something that's going to go away. We got to start thinking like that, in, in, in my opinion. Uh, that is that is so powerful. What is the long game? And, and you know, I, when you were talking about the woke culture, I. I remember when my when I was when I was younger and I told my my dad came was like Jennifer I'm I'm gonna be cool like you and you know when your father when you're an older person says these hip words yeah the the very thing that you said is like it's time to retire I love that let's bling this thing out if they're saying it on a national stage it is it's like it's over let's just move on yeah. and and how do we live that I you know I was I was um, doing some reading and and this 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 idea of the long study and a long game. I was reading about Toni Morrison, reading some things about Toni Morrison, and she was very methodical and intentional about the work that she was doing. She apologized to herself. She said, one of my regrets is that when I wrote my first book, I wrote it under my pseudonym because her name is not Toni Morrison. She yeah. changed her name when she was at Howard. And, and, and so she was like, I was too quick to try to be in the game. And so it is, and she's like, I really wish that my first novel would have been with me and not the name that I chose. And so that's what made her continue to use her name as Toni Morrison with all of her books because she's like, I started it. And so, you know, recognizing that and knowing your voice and knowing this, this idea of what's going to happen. I mean, her first book was written when she was 39 and she wrote her last book when she was 80. So she had 40 years of book writing and she recognized that my fault was I jumped in the game and didn't think about the long term. Yeah. And so your point is powerful. So I, I thank you for bringing that up. 
So now let's take it back to your divine nineness. So talk to us about how you as a member of the wonderful Alpha Phi Alpha Fraternity Incorporated, how that groomed you to become the leader that you are today. Oh, I, you know, I tell people um, everything I learned about how to be a president, I learned as an undergraduate member in Alpha Phi Alpha. I, I tell people it's not the degrees. I mean, the degrees help you understand um, the, the, the technical parts of the job and understanding higher ed and the, the continuous study. So I have to do that. But in terms of how I interact and do what I do on a day to day basis, you know, from and it's simple things like how do you how do you, you know, take a small organization and we normally had between nine and 12 members on our chapter at, on our campus at the University of Georgia, but we were all over the place. I mean, the, the joke on campus was like those damn alphas because it was like they have done this. How did y'all do this? How, did, how are y'all the first people to have this party on campus till three o'clock in the morning or four o'clock in the morning? It's like those networking and, and working with administrators and promoting events. And so a lot of things that, that I do and the things that we do here it's like, those are things I started to do as an undergrad. I mean, so for example, our students here, um, they're having Spring Fest and they've used like the theme of this, this star show, P-Valley. And one of the classic characters is Uncle Clifford. So we recently announced our um, commencement speaker. And so I, I was Uncle Walter in there just to link to, you know, sort of hype it up. That's, that's what we did as an undergrad. We learned how to get, build excitement and do those things, you know, speaking in front of people, running meetings, the networking, all of those things. And then particularly for Alpha Phi Alpha, there have been a number of college presidents who are members of the fraternity. So I had these real life role models all the way through of these presidents, like even here in New Orleans, um, Norman Francis, who retired from Xavier a few years ago, longest serving president in the country, Alpha like me became a president at 37 like me. I mean, that's that's my role model. He's my Michael Jackson. You know, I wanted to be like him. And uh, so I, it played a, a very, very important role for me in terms of, you know, what I do and how I how I do it. Yes, I, I think about um, great men of Alpha and the, and the leadership that you all have. I mean, Mark Morio, when I was at uh, Dillard, Mark Morio was, was at the helm. So yeah. um, I recognize that this Alpha leadership is a, is a big deal. And uh, my cousin was at, as it was at Fisk when the great, wonderful, was it Hen Henry Ponder? Oh when, yeah, Henry when he Potter. was when, yep. right when he was taken over. So yep. I, I I know a lot about you know members of Alpha and and the work that you all do and and it is it is it is tremendous and and you're right it's like everywhere you look it's like oh my god the Alphas are doing this the Alphas are doing this no disrespect to the other divine nine gents but right. yes I I recognize that. Um, the work that you're doing. So um, we're about to end our, our formal interview. Is there anything that you would like to, to close with about this, the importance of the HBCU education and social action um, that happens on our campuses? And, and even though we are not in a traditional space right now, what is the future and promise of an HBCU education once we return back to the new normal? Right. Well, so I mean, I think what has happened, particularly in the last couple of years, addressing all of the just the challenges we had, and I've, I've sort of alluded to this, is that, you know, I, I've done a lot of panels and conversations and people keep having these conversations about the relevance of HBCUs. And I'm like, y'all, like, for real, you got the vice president of the United States, you got the first black senator from Georgia, you got the mayor of New Orleans and Atlanta in Birmingham 
and Montgomery, I mean, and St. Paul, Minnesota. I mean, it's like, so all of these people in these roles, and even when people would say, um, how can you understand how the real world works when you go to a place that's majority African-American? I say, well, if you look at the faculty, the faculty of HBCUs are way more diverse than the faculty of, of majority institutions. So, I mean, they're learning from a very diverse group of people on, for in one instance, but when everybody was, hair was on fire last summer with George Floyd and they're trying to figure out like, how do we learn about how to deal with race? Everybody was reading Ibram Kendi. His books were flying off the shelf. Ibram Kendi went to FAMU, okay? Everybody's reading the, the guy that went to FAMU or they're reading Ta-Nehisi Coates who went to Howard. So that's who's teaching you how to deal with this, the people who went to spaces that were black. So when you start adding all these things together, it's like, we're not having this conversation anymore. We're not having this conversation when the person over MSNBC is a Hampton grad or the new person over, uh, I think, ABC News is a, oh, I'm just forgetting which HBCU she graduated from. I mean, she's an HBCU grad. So uh, you're seeing people in these mainstream spaces that are HBCU grads everywhere. So it's like, all right, y'all, for real, let's, let's not have that conversation. I mean, it's there is, you know, I think there was a period of time when people were just saying you can go wherever you want to. The percentage of black students going to HBCUs dropped about eight or nine percent. It's starting to tick back up. Uh, but you just look in contemporary America today, HBCUs are overrepresented in terms of people who are making contributions in a lot of these places. And that's I think that's what's happening now. So that's it's exciting. I think it is exciting. I, I, I cannot agree with you more. Um, my identity as a scientist was formed when I was at Dillard University. Yeah. And so being able to be black, female and science as a scientist in the world, that just gives you that intersectionality is just in and of itself a distinctiveness. But being able to walk proudly on the campus, say, yeah, I'm a chemistry major and yeah, I did this and yeah, I wrote this thesis and yes, I'm about to present at a National Science Foundation. Yeah. All of that confidence came for me as a kid work, you know, going through Stern Hall, being yeah. in that space. And so my, my, my experiences, and I tell that story no matter what, that I became the person that I am in terms of science as a scientist through Dillard University because mm -hmm. it made it okay to be a black female scientist where no one judged you and looked at you. You were just who you were. Right. And that that is very meaningful. So I, 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 you are so right. All of these studies that are happening, I love that. Who's teaching you how to be an anti-racist are people who graduated from HBCU. Right. So get your life. You know what I'm saying? So yeah. that is that is very true. So we have come to the end of our interview with Dr. Kimbrough, and it has been, and please make sure that you follow Dillard University and you follow Dr. Kimbrough and learn of all the great and wonderful things that are happening in New Orleans, the Crescent City. Um, is much more than Mardi Gras and beignets. It is a culture-rich institutional feel. There's what, seven institutions, national institutions in the city of New Orleans by itself? I think it's seven. Um, and I could be wrong, so New Orleans don't come for me. Um, also recognizing that there are a lot of great things happening at my alma mater. So I salute all of my Dillard grads for the 2021 school year. And as all of you are ready to go out into the world to be and become and change the world. So. Thank you so much, Dr. Kimbrough. All right, no problem, thank you. All right.
Chilled Brain interview.